Our scripture reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 4 through 11. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles or look up on the screen and uh, follow along with me. This is Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You know, years ago, I was reading an article by a professor uh, at Baylor University who uh, apparently make, used to make his students read Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings trilogy for class. And afterwards, they had to write about what they thought of it. And invariably, they came up and responded how much they enjoyed it and, and uh, got from it. But one student in particular gave feedback that really fascinated me when she wrote back and she said, after reading the novel, I just felt clean. I thought that was kind of a strange response. What can someone possibly mean about that? Now, I do realize that you've been having to endure a dearth of Lord of the Rings illustrations from me lately. I'm not going to bore you with that. But I, just, I still find that response so interesting. What did she mean when she said that she feels clean after reading it? Uh, my suspicion is that the resonances with that book have to do with Tolkien's unique ability to, to wrap his Christianity in the stories of that book. Now, mind you, it's not an evangelistic book. It's actually not even really a religious book for that matter. But the universe in which the stories occupy, it, it, they're just decidedly grand and, and vast and adventurous and noble, especially in the way they deal with kings. Uh, the central fi king figure in the book is a character by the name of Aragorn. And he's only crowned king at the very end of the trilogy. But when he finally is, there's reported that there's healing throughout the entire land. And one of my favorite passages from the, from the novels comes from, it goes like this, after Aragorn is crowned king. It says, in his time, the city was made more fair than it had ever been even in the days of its first glory. And it was filled with trees and with fountains, and its gates were wrought of mithril and steel, and its streets were paved with white marble. And the folk of the mountain labored in it, and the folk of the wood rejoiced to come there, and all was healed and made good. And the houses were filled with women and ch men and the laughter of children, and no window was blind nor any courtyard empty. And after the ending of the third age of the world into the new age, it preserved the memory and glory of the years that were gone. Look, my premise is, is that the Lord of the Rings books resonate with us 
because they're reflecting something that is true. And the reason why we are ennobled when we read about kings and about realms and about healing that happens under good kings is because those stories are true. We indeed were made to have a king reign and heal us. And furthermore, if our passage that we looked at this morning is going to be believed, a king has taken the throne of the universe and has launched a great healing that continues to march through history. And I think this is the reason why we keep telling these stories. My children were raised with the story of the, uh, the Lion King. When, of course, we look back at that story and realize how much the kingdom was thrown into darkness and despair under the reign of the false king Scar. But when the true king Simba takes the throne, what happens? There's color and vegetation and beauty that returns to the realm. I'm simply suggesting these stories have the power over us that they do and resonate with our souls powerfully because they're true. We started a series last week through the book of Acts that we're calling Jesus Continued. And we were introduced to the book by the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, who by far are the main characters of the whole tale. Well, today we find in the inauguration, the inaugural event of this great story is the crowning of Jesus as king, or what we know as his ascension, the theologians will say. You know, when I was a child, I read this story a little bit disinterested as nothing more than kind of a, a cool departure story of Jesus. Like, oh, wow, he's rising in the air. That's kind of cool. But I'm now realizing that this is actually, this opening passage is the pivotal event in the entire book. When Jesus ascends to the throne, he sets in motion a mission for the world. And that's what I want to focus on this morning because that's really what we're considering in the book of Acts. What is our mission in this community as a church? And I realize that when I ask that question, there are as many opinions about what a church should be as there are people in this room. But our journey through Acts is trying to give us a sense of the nature and the scope of that mission. But it never start, starts without telling us to understand what it means for Jesus to be king. So I've just got two points for us that I want to stress for us this morning. The first one is simply to clarify the mission and then secondly, to see how Jesus' ascension empowers the mission. Let's look at that first point. Look, in verse 4 and 5, Jesus is not holding back that something earth-shattering is coming. Look what he says. He says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, so there's this, this sense of anticipation in his words. There's something that's coming, something for you to look forward to. But what surprises us when we're reading through this story is how Jesus, at this moment of anticipation, taps into a, to a deep cultural misunderstanding that Jewish people had about the kingdom that he's bringing. And it all hinges on verse 6. And I want to I camp out in verse 6 for a second, because the question that these disciples ask is a complex question. But if you don't understand why they're asking it, you're going to understand a lot about what this mission is about. Look at what they say. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? All right, look, for a moment, let's try to crawl up into the mind of a first century Jewish person and the way they looked at the world. Because I would submit to you there were two fundamental beliefs that colored every Jewish person's understanding of how they looked at the world religiously. Number one was an idea that the Jewish God was the God. There were all the other people that claimed to be gods were false. 
The second belief was that God, after the fall of man, after the sin that had entered from it, God had chosen their people to be the agents of healing for the world. That God was going to emphatically come down and set the world to rights by establishing the Jewish people as his heavenly ambassadors. Okay, so that's lodged inside your worldview. Those beliefs end up coloring just about everything that you said, especially as you start to think about revolution. (laughs) Can you imagine, though, how much more you'd be thinking about that as you're standing before someone who you watched die with your own eyes, and yet here he stands raised from the dead? You're thinking about this. And by the way, Jesus had been talking to them about the kingdom all the way through his three earthly years of ministry. And so with the shock of the resurrection in their bellies, you know they had to be thinking, sweet, (laughs) at last, it's time. It's time to kick some tail. We can set up a base of operations. We're going to get to the business of setting the world to rights and putting the Jewish people back where they belong. Makes sense, right? And I realize it's very easy to be hard on the disciples, and a lot of times they deserve what they get. But you've got to see how deeply rooted that expectation was in their minds. But when you do, you'll begin to see that, that the way in which Luke is crafting this story is actually pretty amazing and shocking. And to, to dig into it, I want to go a little bit further here. I want to do just a little bit of Bible study. Because what you have happening in Acts chapter 1 actually was prefigured in some of the early psalms that were written. Most vividly, I would submit to you, in Psalm 68. It might help you to turn there if you've got your Bibles available to you this morning. Psalm 68 is a psalm that details God's journey to Jerusalem to take up his throne there. It's a fascinating story. You you have this picture of this divine warrior king who has tread all of his enemies underneath his feet. It says in verse 6 that the Lord leads out the prisoners in great liberation and exodus. And he he takes them from Mount Sinai and through the wilderness and into the lands that he promised them in verses 7 through 10. Finally, it says that he defeats the enemy armies in the land so that they can fully possess it in verses 11 through 14. But then you get to 17 and 18 and we find that this this is when the Lord begins to ascend Mount Zion. He's in Jerusalem, and he's headed up to his temple. And look what it says. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Do you see the language? Yahweh headed up Jerusalem in glorious array with thousands of chariots to take his throne. And there's victory everywhere over all of his enemies as he comes up to take it. And people come and bring tribute to him as they do. So you have this conquering enthronement. As Yahweh gets up onto the mountain, he's ready to start a brand new Garden of Eden. He's going to fix everything. And all of the image bearers are going to live and worship him in the presence of God. Then you get to the very last verse in the psalm, in verse 35, when it says, Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. In other words, this ascended Lord not only receives gifts from men, but then he turns around and gives gifts to all the people in his sanctuary. And did you see what he gives them? He gives them power. Power. 
power and strength to overcome the rest of the enemies of the great temple kingdom and to witness to the word, witness by worship to the nations and to be the people God's called them to be. All right, so, so are you paying attention? Do you see the pattern? It's fairly obvious because we, from the New Testament, you've got all these writers that are saying that Jesus on the cross liberates captives from their bondage to sin and death. Colossians 2.15 says that on the cross, Jesus disarmed, shamed, and triumphed over all of the rulers and authorities. Now that he's risen from the dead, what's he ready to do? He's ready to march up and take his throne. This is exactly what Luke is referencing here. Jesus is reenacting Psalm 68's Yahweh victory march up to the throne. Why? Because Jesus is Yahweh come in flesh. Psalm 68 was prefiguring this, and Luke is watching it all happen, and now suddenly he sees that Jesus is standing at his coronation moment. But remember, in verse 35 of Psalm 68, it talks about God giving Israel power and strength. Okay, stay tuned to next week, because we find that that's exactly what's coming in Acts chapter 2. He, when he comes and gives the Holy Spirit, which Jesus expressly describes in verse 8 as being one of receiving power the exact word that's used in Psalm 68. All right, now look, I'll admit that was a little bit of a dense Bible study there. It's a lot of information. What does it all mean? Well, I think you'll, if you wrap your mind around that, you'll understand why Jesus can't just look at the disciples who are like, now, 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 Jesus, are we ready? He can't give them a yes or no answer. Because here's the crazy part. Those two beliefs about the, Jesus peop about the Jewish people were true. The God of Israel was the only God, and they indeed had been called to be his ambassadors in the world. The problem was, was the kind of salvation they thought was coming, and not only that, how it was going to come about. What you find throughout these Jewish people was is they had this picture of the kingdom that involved them as very special people. In other words, they give themselves away over and over again, not the least of which is what happens in Mark 10. Remember in Mark 10 where the, where the two disciples come up to Jesus and they're like, can we, can we have like sweet spots in your kingdom when you come into it? And Jesus is like, you have no idea what you're asking for. Is that what you really want? Yep, we sure do. <laughs> well, this big hook in their mouth as they get dragged away from it. But here's the deal. They also are seeing that their involvement in the kingdom is going to be a matter of their ease because finally they'll be in charge. And Jesus is like, nope, nope, this is not what my kingdom's going to be like. So Jesus can't answer the question directly because he knows what they're thinking. And I find that to be a huge lesson for us. Look, y'all, so many times when we begin to think about what is God doing in the world and what would he have me to do in the world, we, we, we oftentimes, I would say almost every time, take our first step into that mission and we start to cast the world into our image, do we not? In other words, it's so much more about what we want in the world than, than what God is wanting to do in the world. And invariably, it ends up being a reflection of our own aspirations. I mean, think about how many times in your own Christian life when you have been dead positive about what you needed for God to do for you. And how many times you were dead wrong in that estimation. That's how Jesus does this. Because whenever we're coming to him with our needs and our longings and our aspirations for the future... What we think we need is almost always going to be too shallow. And, and, and in the short run, it's very confusing for us why God won't do it. 
But the truth is that God ends up coming along and giving us what we need, and truthfully, in the end, giving us even more than we could expect. I heard one preacher put it this way, God is going to give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knew. That's the key. Look, the only path to contentment and and, and a non-anxious life is this pattern of coming to God with our felt needs and him responding with what the real root of the thing is. So here we are as a church trying to make plans. (laughs) And it's now my second year when we've been in this great new building. And I'm telling you, I spent the better part of a decade daydreaming about how great it's going to be to launch ministry in a brand new building with brand new excitement and joy coming forward. And for some inexplicable reason, that has been thwarted every time, both falls, (laughs) by this pandemic. And it's about to kill me. But here's the point. We always bring our desires before him. And he's like, that's not the way it comes through. This is not my path. (laughs) You simply are called to be faithful The providences you cannot control, you've got to learn to trust me because I am on the throne. We clarify our mission by being clear of the fact that Jesus has been coronated as king and only he can say what our mission is going to look like as we go forward. Do you realize so many oftentimes the sermon is for the preacher rather than for the people that are out there? Bear with me. So that's my first point, clarifying the mission. But the second point that I want you to see, though, is there's also an empowering of this mission as well. In other words, there's this question about, okay, well, where are we going to get the energy to do this? And you see this in verses 9 through 11 when you see the repetition of the word. Hey, by the way, when you're doing your Bible study, make sure you pay attention to that. Um, repeated words are like flashers in the Bible text. They want you to grapple grapple with something here. And four times in those three verses, you get the word heaven. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, the angels say. And this is where the misunderstanding starts. And I want to focus on it in this way. Where exactly did Jesus go when it says that he went to heaven? And I'm going I'm to camp out on this point for this last half of this sermon. For this reason, if you don't have a clear understanding of where Jesus is right now and what our relationship on earth is to what we call heaven, it creates all kinds of bad theology on the other side. Let me start with what I think is a very great opening description of the difference between heaven and earth in the Bible from a theologian by the name of N.T. Wright when he says this. He says, in the Bible, heaven and earth are like two halves of God's created world. But they aren't so much like two halves of, let's say, an orange. More or less identical, but just operating different space. Rather, they're more like the weight of an object and then the stuff that it's made of. Or perhaps the meaning of a flag that we see waving and the cloth or paper that it's made out of. In other words, it's two related ways of looking at the same thing. They are two different and interlocking dimensions, the one perhaps explaining the other. Talking about heaven and earth is a way in the Bible of talking about the fact, as many people and many cultures have perceived it to be, that everything in our world has another dimension, another sort of reality that goes with it as well. I love that. That's a great place to start to get rid of some of this bad thinking about it. 
You see, when a Jewish person thought about the world, they realized there's a material world with like ground and skies and seas and human beings. But there's another reality, another dimension, if you will, that exists right alongside it, except from a different perspective. Heaven is God's space. But that space, if we can really call it that, is actually quite near to us. It's not like Stevie Wonder assured us 10 zillion light years away. But that is the place where Jesus goes to. Why? So he can take his place beside his father's throne and rule not only the heavenly realm, but also the earth. You know, Peter in Acts 2.33 is going to say that Jesus has been now exalted to the right hand of God. In ancient times, the, the person who sat at the right hand of the throne was kind of like a, um, like a prime minister, someone who executed the will of the king on his behalf. But what happens is, is somewhere along the way, and I'm sure it was some Gnostic influence, and I'm sure there was some pagan influence along the way, we began to think of heaven as some ethereal place where, you know, disembodied spirits kind of, you know, waft into the, into the void or something like that. But no, we realize that on the other side of our ability to see, there is a realm where Moses and Elijah are, where Enoch is, and also the risen, glorified Jesus. But what we rarely realize is Jesus is there, you ready for this, with a body. Jesus is still in his body, and he will continue in that body forever. That is, he's touchable, he's present. And for that reason, heaven is not less real than earth, but it's more real. It's thicker than our three-dimensional space, only more vibrant, more colorful, more real. wish we had more time to talk about that. But look, the fact that Jesus is now reigning from heaven, though, is a whole lot more important than you think. So I want to finish by asking this question. What do we gain by the fact that Jesus is reigning from heaven? I mean, seriously, why would he leave? If he was eternal, why do this disappearing thing? Seems like it would have helped, right? But look, this is where you've got to realize it's important to understand that though heaven is continuous with the earthly realm, it's absolutely different because it exists outside of time and space. So what that means is, is when Jesus is now in heaven, he can now minister to all people everywhere. Not just those people in Palestine some 2,000 years ago. Look, this is the reason why Paul talks like he does in Ephesians 1.10, where he says the work that Jesus is doing at the right hand of the Father is to execute, quote, a plan for the fullness of time, ready for this, this is awesome, to unite things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. See his Jewish mind coming out there? In other words, the whole motion of human history is to rejoin heaven and earth. This is why in the book of Revelation, one of the last chapters in the Bible, verse 3, chapter 21, ends with this cry, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. It's the whole motion of the Bible. It's a huge theme. I, I don't know. That's beautiful. That's not thrilling you. Then you got something wrong with you this morning. Okay, so how do we apply this? I'm joking. Number th three things. First thought of application. When Jesus takes over the throne of the cosmos, what he essentially does is he moves his work in the world from simply being inside of us to outside of us. And here's what I mean by that. I do think that we have a tendency, especially in American Christianity, to see becoming a Christian as essentially a, a personal thing. 
that only happens inside of me so that I can, you know, go to heaven when I die. And of course, I'm not suggesting that Christianity is less than that. But Jesus' seat at the right hand of God the Father means that he actually cares about all kinds of stuff that exists outside of me, even beyond my little personal neuroses I'm hoping to get healed. And what you find is the witness of Scripture that Jesus has thoughts about injustice in the world. Jesus has concerns with poverty and the way in which people get trapped in it. We also find that Jesus is working through people who don't necessarily believe in him through what we call a common grace. This idea that even non-Christians can produce great art, can, can come up with great ideas about how to run a country, can write moving literature, that they can even show all kinds of wisdom. Why? Not because being a Christian is useless, of course not, but because Jesus is at his Father's right hand, ruling from heaven, which means he's over all the earth. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, he said in Matthew 28. Do you hear the theme? Second thing is, when Jesus ascends into heaven, it now means that he is universally accessible. Man, this blew my mind when I was studying on this passage a couple months ago. Look, remember that heaven is outside these limitations of time and space. And for that reason, from his vantage point, he can see the whole of my life at one time. Time. <laughs> the beginning of my life and the end of my life. He can see it all. And it was in Tim Keller's little book on this topic that really drew, drove this home, especially in a little story that happens in John chapter 20 after Jesus is risen from the dead. Do you remember the story after the resurrection where Mary is one of the first people to see Jesus after he comes back from the tomb before he goes to the rest of the disciples? And in that thing, Mary throws himself at him, and what he says to her is, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now look, when I was a kid, when I read that, I thought, oh, Jesus is too pure, or too magical, or maybe he's too, I don't know, too uh, ghost-like <laughs> in order for her to really grasp him. That's not what that passage is saying. What Jesus is saying is, Mary, look, please don't cling to me in my present form. In other words, Mary wants Jesus to stay with her as he's always been, to be with her physically there. I need you here, Jesus. But Jesus assures her, like, look, you got to hear me. It's so much better if I ascend to my father, Mary. It's so much better. You want to know why? Because my father is in heaven. And from heaven, I can then be there wherever you are, Mary. What that means is, is whether you end up in a deep, dark dungeon, I can be there if I'm in heaven. It means that all of a sudden, if you end up feeling alone and abandoned, I'm there, Mary. You want to know why? Because I'm at my Father's right hand in heaven. By going to heaven, Jesus now makes himself universally accessible. And it means that no matter what we are doing in our mission on Jesus' behalf, we do so with his intimacy with his nearness. He's not aloof. You want to know why? Because he's in heaven. Our Father who art in heaven. <laughs> Doesn't that blow your mind now what we pray every morning? Thirdly and finally, and I'll finish with this simple thought, we've got to remember exactly what Jesus is doing at the right hand of God the Father. Now look, we're going to talk a whole lot more about this when we talk about Stephen when he's martyred, probably I think in October if I'm not mistaken. But what is he doing? Very simply, Jesus is being your lawyer 
Next to his father, Jesus is being your lawyer. Hebrews 7.25 says Jesus always lives to intercede for them. 1 John 2.1 says if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, lawyer, with the father. And it reminds me so very much of, of the first ticket that I got. No, that's hard to believe that I would ever be so irresponsible as to earn a traffic citation. Uh, but it was speeding and passing on a double yellow line. I had to speed in order to pass on said double yellow line. And I didn't realize it, though, but this was my first time in driver safety school uh, up in Memphis where I'd grown up. And I think I was 17 years old or so. Uh, and I had to go to driver safety school, actually to traffic court, and to sit with all the rest of the, uh, the abject criminals uh, inside the, uh, the, the court. And I didn't realize that the way in which it worked was when you got your name called, you had to kind of walk up to the front and, uh, you know, stand there in front of the judge. And he would ask you straight up, you know, here's what you're charged with. How do you plead? I remember at 17 croaking out and, you know, some you know, halfway through puberty voice, like <clears throat> guilty. <laughs> and I'm telling you, for, for whatever reason, the verbalization of that word to this man in a black robe sitting up high on this pedestal, I've never felt more exposed in my entire life. And I thought, man, here I sit alone and exposed to everything that this guy can do to me, even, especially having verbalized it. And it suddenly occurred to me, you know, you really only look as good in the eyes of the court as you do your lawyer. I didn't have a lawyer that day. <laughs> but you only look as good to the, law, uh, to the judge as your lawyer looks. If your lawyer is polished and professional, then so are you. If he's absent-minded and aloof, you might not get a very good judgment, right? Hey, all that's the point. What, 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 what the Bible is saying and what the ascension of Jesus is saying is because of Jesus' proximity to the throne, he has the judge's ear. <laughs> he can whisper into the ear of the judge, no, 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 no. He's mine. And everything that's happened to him, you put on me on the cross. And my suspicion is he comes and he reminds his father of the wounds. Do you see, do you see the piercings? All of what Les Newsom is guilty of was on me. Hey, look, here's the thing that's got to center our mission. And this is what the ascension gives to us. It means that we're going out with good news, people. <laughs> We've got good news for the world. That there is a king over all the land. And he's restoring everything. You want to know how he does it? By coming and dying for his people. How would that change our mission if we really believe that? Let's pray. And Father, would you explode our minds with just the anticipation of that thought? How different would we be if we believed that you stood right now at the right hand of God the Father advocating? Because, Lord Jesus, we know that when you were raised, you were heard. And having been heard, the Father now has our best interest at heart. Father, fill us with that knowledge. Fill us with that joy. And send us out from this place in just that glory. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.